Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Today is February 21st, 2020, and I am interviewing Dr. Barbara Brickman, who has written a book about Greece. Oh, I'm Natalie Adams from New College. Um, so what I'm really curious about before we get into the writing of the book, I am very interested in, um, do you remember the first time you as a teenager saw Greece? And do you remember what that, that first response was as, I guess you were a teenager? How old were you, I guess? Uh, well, when I saw Greece or when Greece came out? When you first saw Greece, your first experience with Greece. I was probably um, early teens. The Greece came out, so I'm the youngest of five, and I have three older sisters. And what I know about the 70s, I sort of know because I was a kid with them. And so I think I probably knew what Greece was before I saw Greece. Mm-hmm. And I actually asked my sister Peggy, and she said, oh, yeah, we wore poodle skirts, and we went. <laughs> she said that we, and she said, I don't even like Greece, but we, she said, we all dressed up in poodle skirts, and we went to the screening of Greece. Oh, that's so funny. And so I think I knew what Greece was before I saw it. And then I think my experience was probably on television, because I probably, because we had cable, and so I probably saw it in a kind of redacted form on television, and I'm not a big fan of the musical, uh, as a genre, mm-hmm. and I think, I think what I remember about it was thinking it was too old for me, that there was mm-hmm. stuff that was, um, like I was getting away with hearing dirty words, or I was getting away with hearing stuff about sex mm-hmm. that I wasn't. I think I think my first inkling of of Greece was probably, and I you know I say this in the book, Rizzo made a very very strong impact on me, mm-hmm. and Rizzo is the reason that. I would have, have ever seen Greece more than once, and Rizzo and Stocker Channing. But I think I got the sense that it was kind of older teenager and that it was kind of, ooh, taboo. I think that's my first memory of Greece is maybe I, I'm too young to see this and kind of giggly. Well, it was, there were some very risque lines in there, yeah. yeah. Um, did you, at what point did you think it was creepy that these older people were playing teenagers? <laughs> did that come as an adult revelation? Yeah, it must have been adult because, you know, uh, Living Newton-John's 29, Stalker Channing's 36. Right. Um, and they look And John age. Travolta is even, he's not in his, yeah, and they look. Yeah, they didn't look like teenagers. And, uh, you know, and he's, the cinematographer of Greece is, is kind of a... He's kind of a jerk, but um, he talks about how hard it was to light Stocker Channing. And, oh, I have these old actresses, and now I'm trying to have to light them and put makeup on them and make them look like teenagers. I don't, I mean, and the other thing is that as a teenager, like, um, we were all obsessed with Beverly Hills 90210. And Luke Perry was almost in his 40s when, like, he was that that same kind of age. I think we were, that, that wouldn't have struck me as 
as unusual, except when you compare it, because I was a Brat Pack, you know, I was a John Hughes era kind of teen film kid, and so, and those were predominantly, he, he insisted on having teen mm-hmm. actors, and you know, Molly Ringwald's whatever, 14 or 15 when she mm-hmm. first starts. So I think I would have probably, and, and the thing about Grease that, that persists is even when it first is released, it's supposed to be about nostalgia, or, or people see it as mm-hmm. a kind of look back. So it's, in a way, always, always going to be your parents or someone else's generation's teenager. And so I think the, the age thing probably would just seem to me like, well, this is some old movie that was, it's not about real teenagers like these John Hughes movies are, but it's, it's for somebody else. You know, it's for my sisters, or it's, mm-hmm. it's my mom. My mom was born in 1940. So whenever, and I've studied the 50s now for a long time, and whenever I think about this period and studying teenagers, I think about my mom. Because, you know, this, this is supposed to be 1958. She's going to college. You know, she's ex- almost yeah. exactly that age as the teenagers in the movie. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, I think when it came out, I first thought it was going to be more like American Graffiti. And okay. then it wasn't like... American Graffiti. So you had seen American Graffiti? Yeah, I had. As a you know, I was younger. Um, yeah. And uh, when American Graffiti came out, seventy three. Yeah, so I was like eleven when American Graffiti came out. But you know, it resurrected this whole nostalgia for 50s. the fifties. And so I think when I was in seventh grade, I had a fifties birthday party, <laughs> and so people came, you know, dressed. Um, and so when I saw Greece, I did not. I didn't feel like it was a depiction of 1950s so much. Mm. Um, And I thought it was really interesting, and I know this is jumping ahead and then I'm going to go back, but I thought it was really interesting where you talk about how the book, I mean the movie Grease, um, was actually, um, you know, speaking more about what does it mean to be a teenager in the 1970s when it was actually produced rather than what did it mean to be a teenager in the 1950s. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that one of the real impetuses, impeti, for me to, to talk about Greece is because I felt like it had been misunderstood, right? And that's mm-hmm. the kind of classic academic thing. But I felt like all the reviews at the time and the, any, any scholarship that had been done on it talked about it being this sort of retrograde, conservative, very 50s. Let's see if we can return to the 50s, the values that we used to have in the 50s, when boys could be boys. And um, Tim Sherry uses the term masculine mythologies, that this is, there were a series of films in the 70s that were trying to return to these kind of masculine mythologies of the 50s. Um, and Danny Zuko is the sort of one of these paragons of this. He gets to, he gets to be um, sexually active. He gets to be cool, and he doesn't. He's not punished for that. He's our hero. And so, one of the things that has always bothered me about that is one. I've always thought the film was a girls' film, mm-hmm. and they kept talking about it in terms of it being this kind of part of these pack like. Um, Lords of Flatbush. There's a whole series mm-hmm. of films in the '70s that represent boys. American Graffiti is another one that's mm-hmm. more of a more of a boys' story and more that kind of oh, 
wouldn't it be great if it was we were in the 50s and we kind of had these privileges and we you know it's that's the line that that a lot of the critics take and I felt like even though I was never a huge fan of Greece as a you know individually we loved Greece too I had a VHS of Greece too that we wore out when I was in high school but I always thought it was much harsher on the 50s than they were saying it was that it was it was much more critical I felt like it was much more critical of the 50s and that to me was my sort of way in to say I think we need to rethink this film and what it's doing because I think it is more more of a critique and more upsetting and subversive than we've kind of said and to me the the angle for that was from the position of the 70s masculinity femininity the the sort of double standard for girls all of that looks very different after the sexual revolution Mm -hmm. and you can even if you wanted to sort of give this nostalgic yearning back for the 50s it's kind of impossible not to have that post-sexual revolution those ideas present in it and so for me you know and this is kind of this is a kind of scholarly tack that I just always want to take I'm never happy that people say oh this is a retrograde sexist homophobic piece of work and here I'm going to show you how it's sexist for me I always (coughs) I'm always more interested in how can we kind of find the fissures? How can we find the gaps in a work that show that it's not as simple as, you know, this is this is giving girls messages that they should be pure and they should not, you know, have premarital sex or what, you know, those kind of, that those questions around the double standard. So that's the position that I started with that I, that I felt like Greece was, was, was more, more progressive, if you want to use that word, or more resistant to that 50s narrative than anyone was kind of giving it credit for. And then to me, the girl and girlhood and sexuality were the two ways that I wanted to talk about its ability to disrupt that narrative. Um, I, I think I say in the book, and I, I think I have this, that, that I was fascinated by the first moment where Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey actually started creating the the play that would eventually become Grease. Mm-hmm. The, and it was Warren Casey who created this scene. They had been joking around at a party about a, a cast party. They were both actors in Chicago. And they had been joking around, like, wouldn't it be great if we did, like, a spoof of doo-wop and all this music that we loved in the 50s? And so they started kind of goofing around with, you know, spoofs and, and, play, and homage to these songs. And Jim Jacobs says, the next day Warren Casey came and said, I wrote the first scene. Mm-hmm for this play, and the first scene he wrote was The Pajama Party. Mm. And I thought, if you're going to make a movie that's about masculine mythologies, you don't start with The Pajama Party. Mm-hmm. So that sort of sent my brain down this avenue of like, okay, what does it mean that that pajama party is also, well, later she gets the look at me on Sandra D's song. Mm-hmm. It's not, it wasn't part of the, that original scene. But that, that's, that look at me on Sandra D and The Pajama Party is actually the core of Greece. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm reading about Warren Casey and learning that he died of AIDS and that he was, they always describe him as this very, very sincere, very lovely gay man. And so I thought to myself, if the kernel of Greece mm-hmm. 
is a pajama party scene written by a gay man in the 1970s. This isn't, this isn't the film that, that people have been saying it is. And so that sort of sent me off, you know, trying to think about the ways in which those different critiques of gender and sexuality could be running through the film. Right. But didn't the um, eventual, like, uh, so it, it began as an off-Broadway play, right? Yeah, off-loop, off they call it. Right. It was because it was in Chicago. It and off, then off. it became... A Broadway play. Mm -hmm. It went Broadway, then it went movie, right? Right. right. Um, but how is the um, the rendition of Greece that most of us have been exposed to? Because not many of us are going to have seen the off Broadway. Right. Um, how is it different from um, the original? So the, the because when I'm reading, you know, your book, it I didn't realize that it was just so different yeah um i mean this is a it's a it's a long story but it the most of the the a lot of the criticism that came out when the movie came out was that it was particularly from theater critics people who had seen the the different theatrical productions was that all of the bite and the the risque when they made this this off 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 Broadway play, they could they had swear words and they had a lot more taboo content. Mm -hmm. When it um, a lot more ethnic content. So there's another thing mm -hmm. that happens is as it goes to its more mainstream, more mainstream, more mainstream, you have a kind of whitewashing of it. Mm -hmm. So the specificity of neighborhoods in Chicago, the specificity of Polish kids. Italian kids, you know, uh, Hispanic kids in Chicago that, you know, and so the, the two components of the original, you have kind of Warren Casey and, this, and, and Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey thinking about music, and then you have Jim Jacobs talking about Taft High School, which is where he went to Chicago, which was a big high school, but also incredibly diverse, a lot of working class kids, a lot of, you know, and so one of the things that they talk about happening is as it goes more and more mainstream, that specificity of, of place and specificity of different types of kids disappears and a lot of the working class elements also disappear. Um, and so, you know, the a big criticism of the film is, okay, they set it in California and they set it in what looks like a suburban, it is, a suburban high school. So, and then when you, you make Sandy, Olivia Newton-John, mm -hmm. you've kind of really made this more a kind of conservative, suburban, white, middle-class teen text. Mm -hmm. And all of the sort of the, na the, the naughtiness and the, and the, the rough uh, critique that, that Casey and Jacobs might have put in the original production as it goes. Like, so Broadway adds more songs and Broadway takes a, a, a lot of the signifiers of Chicago out. So it becomes, uh, and it becomes, as it goes on, it becomes more of a romance as well. Mm. So the criticism is, of course, that like as it, it doesn't have the same bite of a kind of working class critique of the 50s or what it means to be um, a kind of, I think of a kind of Marlon Brando figure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that criticism of the establishment, that criticism of sort of straight culture that can be performed by as kind of rough, rougher working class masculinity or that kind of Marlon Brando figure 
is replaced by this kind of, you can imagine in the end is replaced by this fluffy love story mm -hmm. between Danny and this kind of very, very upper middle class white Sandy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, and some of the, the reviewers talk about that being the great tragedy of this film mm -hmm. is that it's, um, it's removed that bite, that political bite mm -hmm. that this, this tougher masculine figure put in the original. Um, my argument is that they're not understanding the nature of the critique. Mm -hmm. That it's, that the, that, and this is the kind of larger thesis of the whole book, is that what rebellion looks like in the 70s is something different. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like is queerer and more female, more feminine. And that's not the kind of thing that we think of in terms of rebellion. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of thing that white male critics are going to see, white male straight critics are going to see as rebellion. Mm -hmm. Marlon Brando is a rebel, right? But a gay man in the 70s isn't a rebel. Well, um, so I was, you know, I was curious about how, um, like, did you begin this project knowing that for you, Rizzo was the most interesting character, and and would you even argue that she's the main character? Because I thought that, I thought it was interesting as you were describing some of the scenes, and of course, I mean, I'm not a film critic at all, right. so you know, thinking about placement and where the camera goes, because of course, I watch this show and I think, well, yeah, Sandy and Danny are the, the main <laughs> stars, right? And um, but then, you know. I think by you kind of queering this whole movie and the critique mm -hmm. of it, you disrupt so many things, but you also turn the the angle towards Rizzo. So uh, you know, was that was that the, the is that what you began with? Was that? I mean, or did I that think develop? I think I had to do some self reflection okay. um, be, because I, when this project came to me in a way more than I mean, I had written about the 70s at teen film, and I had written about Greece a little bit in my first book, and so it, this book, this project came to me more than me saying, like, I've got to That's write a right. book they, about somebody Greece. Somebody asked you to specifically write, I forgot about that. Right, so, so I was approached to write this volume on Greece because okay. I was somebody who had written about the 70s, and my book did have, and not a lot of people write about 70s teen film, and I had this section of my sort of genre mm -hmm. chapter that talked about um, I think it was the Frenchie's number. <laughs> I mm -hmm. talked to, um, uh, about that number in that book and so somebody approached me so I didn't seek out to do this but you know I I was very interested in Greece as a phenomenon mm -hmm. and as a phenomenon that was that was basically disregarded but when I was was sort of okay I'm committing to this project and I watched the film again because I, you know, we the thing about Greece is I've seen it a million times, right? It's almost on television. I mean, I've seen pieces of it a million times. I know every single song. I know the words to every single song, and I don't even like musicals. Mm -hmm. And but when I watched it again, I thought, oh, I remember now um, that when I was a teenager, the only thing that I really, really gravitated to was there are worse things I could do. <clears throat> that number for me, was the one that I had on a mixtape. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, and, and when I watched it again, I thought, oh, right, mm -hmm. okay. Um, that what I was, uh, okay, as a queer person, Sandy and Danny's story is always going to be fluffed to me. It's always going to be bracketed off. Mm -hmm. 
because I know that story and it's not my story. It's not a story that includes me. So I know as a viewer and as a fan, I tend to not ignore, but just it's like noise, Mm -hmm. right? So that isn't the thing that as a fan or a viewer or a spectator that I'm going to obsess about or gravitate toward or... And I remember there are worse things I could do, which is a number that Soccer Channing and Olivia Newton-John had to fight for them to keep in the film. Wow. They wanted, Alan, Alan Carr, the producer, was like, the big downer, this yeah. number is a big downer. And, um, but it is the number about the double standard in the right. 50s. And Soccer Channing, who fortunately was like older, she was like, no, 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 no. In order to understand who Rizzo is, and understand her as like a human being who has these forces impinging on her as a real person, not just this, then you have to keep this number. And so when I, then I started to think about, okay, what does Greece really mean? What did it mean to me? And it was about this other person, this Rizzo, who was, um, to me, she may not be the star, but she's the rebel. And, and, and so, and I'm always attracted to the rebel figure. Most teenagers are, but I think she's also, no offense to Olivia Newton-John, this is her like second thing she'd ever really acted in that was significant. Stalker Channing is brilliant in it. Mm-hmm. She had been in, you know, she's obviously been in musicals mm-hmm. and, she, you know, a lot, some of the reviews talk about like John Travolta is supposed to be the star, but the surprise of Stalker Channing mm-hmm. is like this performance mm-hmm. is very charismatic. Mm-hmm. But I think for me... I didn't intend um, to kind of write the book about Rizzo, but when I thought about Greece and another reading of Greece, I thought, why aren't we talking more about Rizzo? Mm-hmm. To me, I wouldn't talk about Danny Zuko, mm-hmm. although he's, you know, Travolta was the biggest star in the world basically at the time. Mm-hmm. But to me, Rizzo is a way to kind of think through this film and especially since she's at the center of the pajama party scene, mm-hmm. then that, I think that those two things together, my own love of the other number, there are worse things I could do, and then this idea that the, the kernel for at least Warren Casey was that pajama party scene. Then I have to look, look at me, I'm Sandra D, and the there are worse things I could mm-hmm. do numbers become sort of pillars for me in setting up the argument I wanted to make. So I see Rizzo as the film's rebel and I see her as a kind of fulcrum around which a different version of the movie can turn. Well, I want to come back to the idea about her being a rebel because I, the ending of, of that movie, I have to be convinced, <laughs> right? But um, I remember when the movie came out, um, you know, um, there being a lot of critical acclaim for Stockard Channing. I mean, she she was an unknown to a lot of people because she had done so much on Broadway and was a very, very respected and accomplished, um, you know, actor. Uh, actor, singer, you yeah, know, that sort of Broadway. Yeah, and, um, and I remember afterwards her, when it came out, I mean, my dad hated that show but he loved her and he loved her in that show you yeah. know and he yeah. he's the one I remember telling me well my gosh she's a great you know and tell me all of her accomplishments oh, so wow. yeah so I thought that was really funny but I do want to come back to the rebel but um so um what other challenges did you um kind of encounter Particularly, and I had forgotten that part, that this was not a project that you began because of your own interest in Greece. It was right. because of your expertise as a scholar of youth culture and um, particularly that time period. So 
Um, that's a different way to approach a research project. So what we're, you know, other than saying, okay, I'm not going to, you know, people have written about Sandy and Danny and, mm-hmm. you know, I've written about Sandy, right? And so, um, but besides saying, okay, the focus, let's, let's let, you know, Rizzo be part of, of how we look at this movie differently. What other challenges did you face? Part of what interesting challenge was that, um, well, one one challenge for me, just as a writer and as an academic, and is I had never just written about one movie, mm-hmm. not always done close reading, so I I didn't have a problem sort of doing that kind of work that really looked closely at particular scenes, but I think that that sort of it ended up being wonderful, mm-hmm. but I think that was sort of getting my head around like a hundred to you know I'm gonna do four chapters on one movie. And fortunately, our editors sort of said, okay, we, we want different, we want you guys to all have a similar theoretical framing for, we want there to be a kind of industry chapter. Mm-hmm. We want there to be a kind of historical consideration. Um, we want there to be something that's maybe a social or ideological type reading, mm-hmm. and then you do what you do. But mm-hmm. we would like all, because it's a volume in a series mm-hmm. about youth on t- end screen. And so... Uh, that was helpful because then I thought, okay, I can, I'll write a chapter about sort of how, what, what kind of blockbuster Greece was, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll have this chapter about, and I thought, oh, naturally, how it fits into sort of our understanding of the teenager. That's my history chapter. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that I would do gender and sexuality as mm-hmm. my theoretical frame. And then with something like Greece um, and another kind of sort of expertise that I have is audience and reception and... Mm-hmm. Um, fans and Greece has you know its fandom is unreal so I, that part made me feel better but I did worry about writing about one film it sounds like my students you know mm-hmm. <laughs> how am I ever going to have enough to say about <laughs> right. Greece um, and that it hadn't been written about very much mm-hmm. um, and then I'm not somebody who does necessarily that sort of production history you know mm-hmm. finding out fortunately um, Stephen Tropiano had written the only other book on Greece. It was another slim volume in a series called Music on Film. And so mm-hmm. he had done all of this research about sort of how it moved from play to Broadway mm-hmm. to and and who were the music producers and you know he had done all of that kind of historical research and I relied on him for most of that because I don't go to archives and I don't, mm-hmm. you know. So that was really helpful. Um, and then it ended up being that writing on one film was the most wonderful experience because it actually clarified for me what I had been trying to say for about 10 years because it forced me to think about this one thing. And so it, 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 I, was, I, I said to myself about halfway through writing it, that's what I was trying to say in my book. And I've, I get it now that like really what, I'm, what I was interested in was the idea of rebellion being something different in the 70s. And by having this one text that you had to kind of spin around and spin around and spin around, um, it helped me really clarify what the, was what I felt like was happening in the seventies. Um, and there's and, it should, and there's also just a challenge that no one had written on Greece, um, and so what was I gonna who was I gonna cite who was I gonna work off of you know I did end up doing that but that there was that, and the other thing is that I don't 
of all the genres in film, musical and melodrama are my least favorite. And so I was having to write about a musical, and I feel like I'm not somebody who knows a lot about music. I don't don't play, you know. They, yeah. And so I felt like, ooh, this isn't my genre. This isn't. Um, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't know anything about choreography, you know. And so and you. Fortunately, other people had written on that, but I was nervous about writing about the musical numbers, and and I and you know I've had students in New College know a great deal more about the Broadway production mm-hmm. and how the you know who what players were involved and what this choreographer can do, and mm-hmm. I just don't have that expertise, and so I did a sort of film studies version, my film studies version of that, but that was definitely. A concern. I mean, since since this little volume came out, there now is a really recently released edited collection on Greece. Oh wow! So one of the things I say at the end of the book is I hope more people write about Greece right. because it's so it's so ridiculous that, that this has been kind of underwritten about, and now there's a there's been a new edited collection. So hopefully more people um, will write about it because I think it's it's always written off as this like piece of cotton candy. Right, just a little, a fun little musical, piece of cotton candy, and all these, you know, it's a blockbuster. But I think there's a lot more that we can think about. Girl, I understand. As somebody who writes about cheerleading, and it's been written off. <laughs> why would I we mean, write about cheerleading? Why these things that people, you know, uh, you know, trivialize, and but yet they're so perennially popular. So right. um, I want to come back to that. I'm wondering if, um, in your research about production and you know, inspiration and how the original, you know, writers and producers put this together. Um, was there any reference to West Side Story? Um, yes. Uh, not, not at the original. Not, not, not necessarily. I mean, one of the things that I know Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey were interested in, and I talk about this, is the sort of, um, the, cheap drive-in movies mm-hmm. that were in the 50s for teenagers so the hot rod movies the you know and you know there were teen musicals and stuff like that um and they saw themselves as writing like he, they thought wouldn't it be funny if you wrote um a musical that was about doo-wop and not like rogers and hammerstein you know not like oklahoma not mm-hmm. like and so i think they were very aware that they this was not west side story mm-hmm. even though I think West Side Story is for any kind of teen musical mm-hmm. is going to be a, a an influence and a and a kind of a, a paradigmatic kind mm-hmm. of text, and I know once it goes to Broadway, then they're thinking about in terms of how is this going to be sold with and sold in distinction from something mm-hmm. like West Side Story, uh, and I think that. Um, the 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 creative teams wanted Greece to remain something different from West Side Story because um, there's certainly you know the elements of the the gangs right? right but as you were explaining it you know the um, the uh, kind of um, differences in uh, you know, the way in which people experienced life, teenagers experienced life in West Side Story is so pronounced because of their ethnicity. So right. ethnicity is not erased, right. whereas ethnicity is erased 
in Greece, you right. know, and any kind of diversity that sounds like was in the original didn't make it. I mean, by setting right. it in, in California of all places, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's like all American, um, you know, different, you know, different from Chicago and New right. York, right? Until and we get suburban, to the, yeah. Until we get to like cha-cha and like the 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 dance numbers yeah. and, then, and then people talk about like that that there is this like slight mm-hmm. infusion of that um and it's very that, similar to the west side when whatever she does her dance i can't right. remember the characters all right. in the west side story but um maria yeah is it well is she the, the one that does the dance oh the, right the, yeah. i mean that scene itself at the high school dance is very similar to west side story yeah. when um so and and i'm thinking because you know west side story is now um, being revived on Broadway mm-hmm. and it's being um, much more um, I don't know when it's actually being set mm-hmm. but I do know that it is going to be even more diverse mm-hmm. um, in its uh, depiction of the gangs and I'm right. sitting here trying to think so you know Greece is ripe for a revival in terms of not just you know bringing it as it was but rewriting it I mean you know you think about the ways in which Oklahoma has now been revised where right. you know um curly yeah i mean you know it's it's a it's story you know it's, it's now a queer story right right, it's right. wonderful so <laughs> i'm just kind of wondering like what's going to be happening what's going to happen with greece well you know. well and the um you know they had the fox fox had the the greece live performance um that was uh, a, a few years ago now but i remember that being a component of the greece live performance was how can we kind of think think through greece a little more in terms of its original diversity in terms of its original um uh critique of a kind of middle class white um dominant 50s culture uh, and and the way in which, you know, and one of the upsetting, one of the most uh, upsetting, and and not unexpected um, problems with teen film is, you know, uh, uh, with with certain exceptions throughout the twentieth century, it is almost entirely white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can say Sidney Poitier, mm-hmm. right. Uh, um, and then, uh, I mean, literally, when I looked at the 70s, we're talking about, in terms of mainstream film production, three films that have African-American teenagers in them. And then the 80s, again, not a great period for for any kind of diversity. And then there's this kind of 90s moment where, you know, you have what they, you know, New Urban Cinema, or they, you know, talk about the um like boys in the hood menace mm-hmm. society there's a kind of series of films but i think greece most definitely is the film suffers from that that sort of completely monotone mm-hmm. um and and regressive and um you know, one of the things I say about uh, teen film, my book, is that it's always been about the story of, it's, it's for so long been about the story of a father and son reconciling. And it's a very kind of patriarchal narrative, but it's also a dominant white narrative mm-hmm. of like, 
Um, and certainly when you think about the 50s, uh, how can someone like Elvis Presley um, bring up and how can we manage the class and the racial signifiers that are being brought up by teen culture? How can we manage this youth culture to, to, to um, resolve issues around civil rights that are starting to occur? How can we, you know, the, and so I was just talking about the music industry the other day and um, the practice of having white singers or faces really because they you know often weren't even singing the songs representing black music um, and unfortunately that is one of those elements of Greece the film in the 70s that happens is you have a kind of erasure of any of the working class or black influences on teen culture again um, in a period where there just isn't it and there and there are more representations of, of racial diversity, but so few. And, it, and the teen genre is so resistant to this, um, I think still. So, so your contribution from this book is that you, um, you, you claim that, you talk about it, you recognize the erasure of race and social class, but yet it sounds like you've also, but you're saying, but they're still don't write it off, right? Yes, yeah. knowledge, yes, we know. Right. We know it has whitewashed it. Right. But yet there is so much that can be learned, particularly it sounds like you're talking about gender and sexuality right. in this movie that warrants some serious academic study and some serious consideration. So don't just write it off because it is, yes, right. we've erased race, we've erased the nuances of social class right um but it's but but it's still worth considering from an academic perspective yeah and i mean one of the things that i'm interested in right now is from my new project is is trying to think through how texts from the 50s um still have or and and particularly queer subjects in the 50s um are are influenced by and then therefore enacting um, traditions, ideas, rebellion that is coming from other um, racial groups. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that is neither here nor there, but the people talk about Rizzo being a kind of butch mm -hmm. figure, right? Well, the butch is a kind of rebel of the 50s and, and, and very much in, in kind of white working class lesbian communities, uh, but throughout it is, is seen as this, as this rebel, as a rebel, as somebody who's defying gender norms, right? Well, the butch is also, is, is carrying signifiers to me of a whole series of African-American lesbians or queer women in the 30s who were called bull daggers who were you know this strong tradition of blues singers for example um that that is a part of this performance and so one of the things we need to think through is how we can we can kind of review those signifiers 
and 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 see them and and try to locate them. Another figure I'm interested in is the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Well, the Amazon is almost always in these comic books um, tied back to Africa. So what you know? In what ways can we think through this figure of the Amazon as having signifiers of race that have been that are there but aren't as present, you know? Or the the white Amazon? How is she enacting certain racial arguments without us maybe we haven't thought about that enough i love that so it's almost like you're doing this kind of um Foucauldian genealogy of rizzo in which the, the 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 tentacles are much more than just about changing gendered norms that they are in fact so entangled with this kind of long history of the representation of queer women, the you know representation of queer African American women, and right. that. Um, so yeah, I love that, and I think that's a really, to me, you know, an exciting area of research. I was hoping that you were going to say that your next um, study <laughs> was going to be a small monograph on Greek. I mean, I'm sorry, on Ferris Bueller's Day Out, because I know that you've also written about that. So. Yeah, I, uh, and, uh, um, yeah. Queering the character of Cameron. I am, uh, yeah, I'm uh, in a, a, a forthcoming collection. That this is another sort of strange, there's never been a book or an edited collection written on John Hughes. And I've avoided John Hughes wow. my whole teaching life because John Hughes films are, that is my teenage years, right? Yeah. And so I, th- I just think that's a landmark. I mean, I've taught, I've taught them, you know, I've taught Breakfast Club. You have to. Yeah, I mean, I have taught teen films. Social class and social hierarchies <laughs> in high school. I've taught. Breakfast Club, um, come on. But we're, this is going to be, it's a uh, in-focus series and it's going to refocus series. And it's, and it's, so I've written on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, and, and I do, <laughs> there are the, I do have a bit of a moment there, even though I'm interested in this this figure of the queer kid. It's, it's been a focus of my research for so long. But um, the way in which that queer kid um, is tied to... Um, this is a whole other area that's interested me. The, the, it's tied to African-American culture and um, suffering, right? So Cameron, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. Like he invokes as his, you know, a signifier of his queerness is the suffering that is, that comes to him from African-American culture. Uh, and then we have the terrible dance sequence with Ferris where all of the African-American dancers are up on the steps behind him. And here he is the, the sort of white savior uh, dancing. So uh, I have a, I have a little bit in there about that. Um, but yeah, there should be more. I mean, John Hughes is probably the reason why we we consider the 80s to be this terrible kind of um, really unfortunate racist threads that run through um, you know his films and and then teen film kind of generally in the 80s but yeah well, before I ask um, my last question um, so tell me um, what have I not asked you about, you know, you're thinking about Greece, you're writing about Greece, your contributions that you think the book has made um, to both film studies, gender studies, to youth studies. Um. I think the, the, I mean, the one thing we haven't talked a lot about is fans. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has been the focus of mine for a long time. 
And it's, it's also one of the reasons why I never believed the argument about Greece being this kind of simple conservative okay. narrative. Because one of the things that happened to me when I started writing about Greece was I met every time, every time I talked about it, someone would come up to me and tell me their Greece story. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter if this was, I mean, it, it went across race, it went across class, it went, everybody had a Greece story they wanted to tell me. Um, and I have, I end the book with like this bizarre, a friend of mine gave me an article at the time I was writing this book about this new great playwright in New York who was from Africa. And the, his, his profile in the New York Times talks about him going to um, London with his father when he was a teenager and seeing this production of Greece in 1993 that starred Debbie Gibson. Mm. And he went back to Kenya, took his, wrote from memory, wrote the screenplay, the, the, the play for the script for Greece, tried to remember the musical numbers and put on the, the Greece musical oh, wow. at his high school wow. in Kenya. Wow. And I was like, that is the, that, that Greece can't be as simple as you think it is. Mm-hmm. If the all of these different types of people mm-hmm. have this experience with it, mm-hmm. and then what was like sort of it's the turning like of this last example is I saw the same production of Greece with Debbie Gibson in it when I was in London in 1993. Oh, yeah. So and I just saw it because I had to see Debbie Gibson. I was right. you know right. <laughs> I was like you know I was like what's she gonna be yeah. like on stage? But I thought that that's what Greece is a very strange. Jim Jacobs calls it an empire. It has become this like financial juggernaut, but it is it, the fans have done you know like you can remember well, I can remember my sister in a poodle skirt. You can remember the, this that it had this kind of um, appeal across and it, and and that it continues. It remains. I mean, it, it teenagers remains now one of the perennially most you know watched um, movies. Even today, I mean, what, it's been 40 years? Yeah, over 40 um, so years you now. Have to, you have to account for that. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, Pam and I have talked about in doing our work on cheerleading, that I think academics can suck the joy <laughs> out of something that brings such happiness, right. such pleasure. And I think that, that we, you know, that it, it's an elitist position sometimes of being able to do that so yeah you've got this story of this person who ends up you know coming to New York and I'm saying right. he's in the business yeah now. and he had three of the the and like heavy duty plays right. like a Greek tragedy and he is the right. it right yeah and so director. so by not taking Greece seriously to me that is you know diminishing this wild contribution that that uh, film made to him, not only as a person, right? So right. It just, you know, brought him joy as a person, yeah. but also for his art form, right? right? So right. to erase that, I feel like it's very elitist, and I don't like that. That's why I write about cheerleading. I don't right. like when academics become such elitist that they get, they, they can't then understand this fandom of, right? right why do millions of people love Greece? It's not that they're stupid, right? right? You can't, right. It, 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 if you if you are taking what critics say about it, then you're basically saying that 
Those they're these duped. Are people are duped. Mm -hmm. They're passive listeners. Right. You know, they right. just go to the movie and don't think about. They things. buy what Hollywood wants them to buy. Right, and I don't buy that. I don't. Mm -mm. I don't. I don't buy that. So I love that you have taken Greece seriously while mm -hmm. also recognizing. I'm glad you have a whole chapter in which you 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 know talk about the fans fandom yeah. and what that means and not you know not not romanticizing it right, right. because and this but, and this is something that shares with cheerleading and i you know and i don't i'm not you know gonna get on my high horse but to me it's not only misogyny that makes us discredit because you know it's not only misogyny that says this is something that little girls like mm -hmm. right um, but it's not only misogyny, but it's ageism to me. It's like mm -hmm. the same thing with cheerleading. Mm -hmm. It's that thing that, and, and fandom is all, you know, this, that these, these teeny boppers, these mm -hmm. girls who love these boy bands, you know, they are the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. Girls who are into cheerleading. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's ageism and misogyny and it's, you know, and, and, and a complete disregard for, for what they find powerful. And that really? was part of like when I read these reviews and they were like, oh, this isn't rebellion anymore. You know, it's not this tough guy. It's, you know, and I thought it, you don't think it's rebellion. Right. Right. You, you don't think that little girls rebel. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I wanted to do in the fan chapter was say, yes, there are there were screaming girls. I mean, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John had to be removed with fire trucks <laughs> from the opening in London. <laughs> Because they were they were being attacked by these girls. Wow. It's absolutely like that wow. that sort of Ehrenreich argument or like the Beatles, the stuff right. about the Beatles. Yeah. The there were young women who were overwhelming the security, mm -hmm. and they had police. So it's not those girls are there, mm -hmm. and they are they are worthwhile us thinking about. Mm -hmm. But there are also all these other fans, and part of the way that we discredit Greece is by saying, "Oh, these little girls are what like it." Right, but I mean, I love that. I like, I like, I love like what can drive somebody to have that much passion. I right. mean, we all actually, actually secretly desire that, don't we? All right. want to be wildly passionate about something, right. so much so that it would make us scream and cry and jump around. Right. And I'm gonna say, I want that. I'm gonna say because of where we are, roll tide. Yeah, <laughs> but it is fine for us to have that passion for football. Oh yeah, right. Those but if it's cheerleading, yeah. right. But if it's cheerleading, right. or if it's uh, Backstreet Boys right. or, or One Direction, then it's pathological, it's right. ridiculous. Right. This person has been sold a bunch of stuff by, right. by Hollywood. Right. And, and it's a reflection that uh, girls and women are ruled by their emotions. Right. And right, so we right. can never put them in charge of anything right. serious like running a country, right? Because and that they're not adults, they're not capable right. Of, right. Of, of, of seeing you know, the ideas that are in, you know, difficult ideas, all yeah. of that is, is wrapped up. You know, as soon as I started seeing people talking about it being cotton candy, bubble gum, yeah. you know, then I know what you're saying, that, that, that this right. is not worthwhile because it's, it, it has to do with girls. It's, you know, and so it also explains to me why we're, we're not going to see this film. I mean, the film ends with Sandy looking back at us in this mm -hmm. fantasy scenario. Mm -hmm. What's well, her film, mm -hmm. right? Like, that says to me... If you see this film as a fantasy, which is one of those the right. kind of readings, then it's Sandy's film. Mm -hmm. And so we, and of course, we're not going to take that seriously. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, well, and it is. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the ending as okay. we kind of, you know, uh, wind up. Um, 
so, you know, this is like where you go have a beer and have this conversation because, so I get that the, the way in which Stalker Channing is the rebel, right? right. And, um, and I kind of, and I appreciate how you complicate that, but the ending of that whole movie, right? To me, now I am not a film studies right. person, but to me, no, you're in line with everybody who's written about this it. This is everybody the movie the ending. <laughs> that is teaches girls in 1970, not 1950s. Right. In 1970s, I mean, Title One's passed. We're in the midst of the feminist movement. Um, you know, we're not at girl power yet, but we certainly are empowering girls more. Right. Right. But to me, the message is, and Sandy exemplifies it, and Rizzo exemplifies it is that you can't be too much of anything. Anything anything of excess is not where you're supposed to be. So right. Sandy's too virginal for the right. 1970s, right? right? I mean, the right. pill is out. Most people are on the pill. Teenagers right. are on the pill by the end right. of the It's the 70s, man. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, we're smoking pot, taking <laughs> right. pill, doing pills. I mean, whatever. You right. know, taking the pill, but also doing pills, right? Right. You know? So... You know, she can't be Sandra D, the virginal chase right. person, right? Right. Now she can't be too vampy and whorish either, right? Right. And so she, you know, she puts on the outfit and she's the she vamp, dresses, but she's not. We all know that. Right. But it's like not, you know. There's 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 this lesson to girls that you can never be too much of anything, too queer, too right. girly, too sexy, too. Right. Like you got to always find that right balance, and that is, that is so emotionally draining to do that, right? <laughs> right. So Sandy's kind of easy, but but Rizzo, I mean, it seems like to me at the end, she's also reigning in, like she can't be too much of a rebel. Kanicki says, I'm going to make an honest woman of you, yes. Rizzo, right? Okay, so now. And then she goes me, off with uh, Yeah, convince me that Danny. at the end, this is not just, you know, this kind of powerful narrative about telling girls that... Yeah, you gotta, you know, excess in any direction. Right. You know, you you still have to manage yourself. I mean, that's yeah. that, and that's the truth of the double standard, right? Yeah. Is that, okay, we're in a new period after the Second World War. Maybe social mores are changing a little bit. So you might be a little, you might do some heavy petting, right. but it's your job to 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 draw the line. It's or your you job. Can, or you can even have. I mean, you know. Now, by the end of the seventies. I'm talking about the fifties. So the oh. message, the double standard oh, of the fifties, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 that's what Sandy performs is like. Oh, I can be a little more sexualized. Mm -hmm. I can be a little more look dangerous. But ultimately, I have to remain pure. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I can. Well, I would just say, or you could be, um, you could be in one monogamous okay. sexual relationship outside of marriage because you know eventually it's going to lead to marriage, right? right. So that was right. okay. Like okay. I say, I feel like by okay. the end of the 1970s, because of the pill, yeah. you couldn't be a slut. Right. 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 And so with her flying off with Danny, the idea was, yeah, like maybe They're they gonna actually get married. got it on that call. Okay. And they were getting okay. it. Okay. But they're getting married, okay? Um, and that's okay too. Like we, we're right. we're, we're okay our, with that. We're like we're we're feminists now, right? We can have sex outside of marriage, but 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 it's got to be in this like monogamous committed relationship. Okay. And that even Rizzo is is like 
with Kaneki. She's right. paired off with Kaneki. She's paired off. And, and he says, I'm going to so make an honest woman of you. I'm going to make an honest woman of you. Right. Okay. Right. So, so um, you know, this is one of these arguments about the nostalgia of the film and how it works as a kind of anti-feminist nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was exactly mm-hmm. what you're presenting. Here's my problem with this. Mm-hmm. Rizzo has slept around. Mm-hmm. We know that. Mm-hmm. She slept with Danny. She slept with Kaniki. We, we're not even sure how many more. The dude, the scorpion dude. Right, scorpion dude. We have, we have I a... I liked him. I liked him. Yeah, I liked him too. Uh, and he is that old school yeah. rebel. But, and she has the pregnancy scare. Right. Right, so that argument is, if you're this girl and you're working class, mm-hmm. you're going to get pregnant and you're going to become nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? So you better be a good girl. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So that... Though, so people talk about, you know, critics talk about that argument is still functioning. You, mm-hmm. you can't sleep around. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem with that argument. Rizzo gets away with it. Mm. So for me, oh, so that's the Rizzo remains, she's, it's not like she hasn't slept around, mm-hmm. but she doesn't have, so one of those social problem films of the 50s is those, and the early 60s, Summer Plays, like there's a whole mm-hmm. series of these where if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant and you better marry Troy Donahue mm-hmm. Or, you know, because that is the worst thing that could happen to a girl, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a whole series of films that are like, mm-hmm. object lesson, mm-hmm. do not have sex, mm-hmm. even if it's with the boy you love, because you could get pregnant and that's the end of your life. Right. Rizzo, we know, has slept around mm-hmm. and she doesn't get pregnant. And we're all like, yay, at the end. So to me, the message is you can continue to sleep around. Mm-hmm. You can continue to be And you rebel. won't be punished. Right. And, you know, and I, I had talked about this a little bit, that Kaniki, while I love him, mm-hmm. and she gets paired off with him in the end, and I've seen other readings of this, mm-hmm. is that when she sees Kaniki, she's with Frenchie. And I have, I, there's an article that I, that I refer to where she talks about, well, Rizzo is paired with Frenchie, mm-hmm. which is like another kind of, well, is, is Frenchie somewhat, you know, like there was this Frenchie relationship. So when he says, I'm going to make an honest woman of you, I think it's funny. Mm. Kaniki has never used the condom that's in his wallet mm-hmm. um, and indicates that, that it's broken and he's worried about being with Rizzo. So Kaniki is the virgin. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And kind of a goof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is a goof. <laughs> and he's not Danny Zuko. So yeah. when he says he's going to make an honest woman out of Rizzo, I think, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Rizzo has been set up to me as this figure who kind of does get around these rules. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, Kaniki, that's fine. Yeah, you're going to make an honest woman of me. But, wink, wink, nod, nod. Right, like, nod, yeah, nod, okay, wink, like, yeah, uh, we'll be together like Shamalamalam. Right. And I, you know, for me, that is, has the potential to be a comic moment. And so for me then, again, we're coming back to Rizzo, Rizzo is much more a kind of 70s figure that is more ambiguous in terms of what is the, what happens to a young woman who is sexually active, mm-hmm. who, who is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, she is promiscuous. Mm-hmm. As you know, we all mm-hmm. say, oh, girls who sleep around, they're promiscuous. And so for me, again, ignoring Sandy, or, or saying, yes, Sandy presents us with that argument, but at the same time, we have Rizzo, who, who does not have to remain pure, mm-hmm. who is not punished at the end of the film for that. Mm-hmm. And we can see her as being paired off with Kaniki, but it, I'm not sure that that's the most lasting relationship 
I don't think the film has set us up to see that as necessarily a lasting relationship. If we want, I mean, and I do have to produce that reading a little Mm -hmm. bit. And that is me kind of reading against the grain a little bit with some evidence that says Kaniki has been set up as a foil to Danny. So, well, I like it because I, I like your reading in this sense. This might not be where you were going, but, you know, I ultimately want to be a nice girl, but not nice girl like Sandy. I want to be a nice girl like Rizzo. And for me, it's like, um, maybe the, the message there is that, yes, you can still sleep around. You can be non-conforming. And you can be someone who pushes boundaries and somebody who stands up, you know, for themselves and for, for other girls that they are close to. Um, but you can still be a nice girl at the end and not nice in terms of virgin, virginal, heterosexual, pretty in the traditional way, all those things that you can, but you can still be a nice girl. And I think, for me, that's a powerful message for girls because as much as, you know, girls, you know, lots of girls will do different things and they may act like they really don't give a crap about being a nice girl. Right. I think a lot of the, 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 a lot of, and and, and I'm, I'm defending, I'm I'm expanding what nice means. Right. But that, yeah, you can do all those things and still be a pretty awesome person. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think that, um, she can still have a kind of moral center. Absolutely. And and she does. And I think that you get the sense that she's helped Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's less present in the film, but that that but that she's on Sandy's side and mm-hmm. she's she's caring for her in a way and for what happens to her. Um, I'm always talking to my class about like where are places where we see solidarity, mm-hmm. where are places where we see a kind of collective working mm-hmm. for women and girls. And that ending is a kind of, you know, they aren't fighting each other anymore. It isn't that cattiness or girls in competition. Mm -hmm. It is a kind of, and she does make this effort to kind of, um, to be kind and compassionate to Sandy, Mm -hmm. um, which is not, not often the message that we get of girls in popular culture, I don't think. But also, I mean, Sandy needed to be slapped around (laughs) by Rizzo. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need that friend. Like, we all need a friend who will call you out and say, you're being an idiot here. You're stupid. You think this about Danny. That whole Sandra D thing you've got going on is not going to cut it. It's a false consciousness girlfriend. Right. I'm like, she, to me, was was so about, like, um, I'm I'm here. I mean, not I'm here, but, you know, our friendship is not going to be, I'm going to call you out on things, and I'm calling you out. Right, and you and and you're buying into a line that's not a good line right. for us, yeah, like right? That, yeah, Girl, this, this whole, girlfriend. Yeah, this whole Sandra D thing needs to go. All right, well, well, thank uh, you, Barbara Brickman. No, thank you, Natalie of Adams. Greece. Uh, that was it. Was very enjoyable. Uh, I, I like, really I like talking about Greece. It's, uh, it's it's fun. Well, I appreciate it. All right, All right let's thank let's you. Hit the stop button. We're gonna hit the stop button. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.